Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. Now, go back and listen to part one of The Mound. What are you doing starting in the middle of the story? That's madness. I'm glad you could join us, and please know that you are welcome, regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available in my Google Drive. The link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and let's get on with the story. Chapter 3 Of his youth in Luarca, a small, placid port on the Bay of Biscay, Zamacona told little. He had been wild and a younger son, and had come to New Spain in 1532 when only twenty years old. Sensitively imaginative, he had listened spellbound to the floating rumors of rich cities and unknown worlds to the north, and especially to the tale of the Franciscan friar Marcos de Nizza, who came back from a trip in 1539 with glowing accounts of fabulous Cibola and its great walled towns with terrace-stoned houses. Hearing of Coronado's contemplated expedition in search of these wonders, and of the greater wonders whispered to lie beyond them in the land of buffaloes, young Zamacona managed to join the picked party of 300 and started north with the rest in 1540. History knows the story of that expedition, how Cibola was found to be merely the squalid Pueblo village of Zuni, and how Denizo was sent back to Mexico in disgrace for his florid exaggerations, how Coronado first saw the Grand Canyon, and how, at Sisuye on the Pecos, he heard from the Indian called El Turco of the rich and mysterious land of Quivira, far to the northeast, where gold, silver, and buffaloes abounded, and where there flowed a river two leagues wide. Zamacona told briefly of the winter camp at Togo on the Pecos, and of the northward start in April, when the native guide proved false and led the party astray amidst a land of prairie dogs, salt pools, and roving bison-hunting tribes. When Coronado dismissed his larger force and made his final 42-day march with a very small and select detachment, Zamacona managed to be included in the advancing party. He spoke of the fertile country and of the great ravines with trees visible only from the edge of their steep banks, and of how all the men lived solely on buffalo meat. And then came mention of the expedition's farthest limit, of the presumable but disappointing land of Quivira with its villages of grass houses, its brooks and rivers, its good black soil, its plums, nuts, grapes, and mulberries, and its maize-growing and copper-using Indians. The execution of El Turco, the false native guide, was casually touched upon, and there was a mention of the cross which Coronado raised on the bank of a great river in the autumn of 1541, a cross bearing the inscription, Thus far came the great general, Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. This supposed Quivira lay at about the 40th parallel of north latitude, and I see that quite lately the New York archaeologist Dr. Hodge has identified it with the course of the Arkansas River through Barton and Rice Counties, Kansas. It is the old home of the Wichitas before the Sioux drove them south into what is now Oklahoma, and some of the Grass House Village sites have been found and excavated for artifacts. Coronado did considerable exploring hereabouts, led hither and thither by the persistent rumors of rich cities and hidden worlds which floated fearfully around on the Indians' tongues. 
These northerly natives seemed more afraid and reluctant to talk about the rumored cities and worlds than the Mexican Indians had been, yet at the same time seemed as if they could reveal a good deal more than the Mexicans had they been willing or dared to do so. Their vagueness exasperated the Spanish leader, and after many disappointing searches, he began to be very severe toward those who brought him stories. Zamacona, more patient than Coronado, found the tales especially interesting, and learned enough of the local speech to hold long conversations with a young buck named Charging Buffalo, whose curiosity had led him into much stranger places than any of his fellow tribesmen had dared to penetrate. It was Charging Buffalo who told Zamacona of the queer stone doorways, gates, or cave mouths at the bottom of some of those deep, steep wooded ravines which the party had noticed on the northward march. These openings, he said, were mostly concealed by shrubbery, and few had entered them for untold aeons. Those who went to where they led never returned, or in a few cases returned mad or curiously maimed. But all this was legend, for nobody was known to have gone more than a limited distance inside any of them within the memory of the grandfathers of the oldest living men. Charging Buffalo himself had probably been farther than anyone else, and he had seen enough to curb both his curiosity and his greed for the rumored gold below. Beyond the aperture he had entered, there was a long passage running crazily up and down and roundabout, and covered with frightful carvings of monsters and horrors that no man had ever seen. At last, after untold miles of windings and descents, there was a glow of terrible blue light, and the passage opened upon a shocking nether world. About this the Indian would say no more, for he had seen something that had sent him back in haste. But the golden cities must be somewhere down there, he added, and perhaps a white man with the magic of the thunderstick might succeed in getting to them. He would not tell the big chief Coronado what he knew, for Coronado would not listen to Indian talk any more. Yes, he could show Zamacona the way if the white man would leave the party and accept his guidance, but he would not go inside the opening with the white man. It was bad in there. The place was about a five days' march to the south, near the region of great mounds. These mounds had something to do with the evil world down there. They were probably ancient closed-up passages to it, for once the old ones below had had colonies on the surface and had traded with men everywhere, even in the lands that had sunk under the big waters. It was when those lands had sunk that the old ones closed themselves up below and refused to deal with surface people. The refugees from the sinking places had told them that the gods of outer earth were against men, and that no men could survive on the outer earth unless they were demons in league with the evil gods. That is why they shut out all the surface folk, and did fearful things to any who ventured down where they dwelt. There had been centuries once at the various openings, but after ages they were no longer needed. Not many people cared to talk about the hidden old ones, and the legends about them would probably have died out but for certain ghostly reminders of their presence now and then. It seemed that the infinite ancientness of these creatures had brought them strangely near to the borderline of spirit, so that their ghostly emanations were more commonly frequent and vivid. Accordingly, the region of the Great Mounds was often convulsed with spectral nocturnal battles reflecting those which had been fought in the days before the openings were closed. The old ones themselves were half-ghost indeed, 
It was said that they no longer grew old or reproduced their kind, but flickered eternally in a state between flesh and spirit. The change was not complete, though, for they had to breathe. It was because the underground world needed air that the openings in the deep valleys were not blocked up as the mound openings on the plains had been. These openings, Charging Buffalo added, were probably based on natural fissures in the earth. It was whispered that the old ones had come down from the stars to the world when it was very young and had gone inside to build their cities of solid gold because the surface was not then fit to live on. They were the ancestors of all men, yet none could guess from what star or what place beyond the stars they came. Their hidden cities were still full of gold and silver, but men had better let them alone unless protected by very strong magic. They had frightful beasts with a faint strain of human blood on which they rode and which they employed for other purposes. The things, so people hinted, were carnivorous, and like their masters preferred human flesh, so that although the old ones themselves did not breed, they had a sort of half-human slave class, which also served to nourish the human and animal population. This had been very oddly recruited and was supplemented by a second slave class of reanimated corpses. The old ones knew how to make a corpse into an automaton which would last almost indefinitely and perform any sort of work when directed by streams of thought. Charging Buffalo said that the people had all come to talk by means of thought only, speech having been found crude and needless except for religious devotions and emotional expression, as aeons of discovery and study rolled by. They worshipped Yig, the great father of serpents, and Tulu, the octopus-headed entity that had brought them down from the stars. Appeasing both of these hideous monstrosities by means of human sacrifices, offered up in a very curious manner which Charging Buffalo did not care to describe. Zamakono was held spellbound by the Indian's tale, and at once resolved to accept his guidance to the cryptic doorway in the ravine. He did not believe the accounts of strange ways attributed by legend to the hidden people, for the experiences of the party had been such as to disillusion one regarding native myths of unknown lands, but he did feel that some sufficiently marvelous field of riches and adventure must indeed lie beyond the weirdly carved passages in the earth. At first he thought of persuading Charging Buffalo to tell his story to Coronado, offering to shield him against any effects of the leader's testy skepticism, but later he decided that a lone adventure would be better. If he had no aid, he would not have to share anything he found, but might perhaps become a great discoverer and owner of fabulous riches. Success would make him a greater figure than Coronado himself, perhaps a greater figure than anyone else in New Spain, including even the mighty viceroy Don Antonio de Mendoza. On October 7, 1541, at an hour close to midnight, Zamacona stole out of the Spanish camp near the Grasshouse village and met Charging Buffalo for the long southward journey. He traveled as lightly as possible and did not wear his heavy helmet and breastplate. Of the details of the trip, the manuscript told very little, but Zamacona records his arrival at the Great Ravine on October 13th. The descent of the thickly wooded slope took no great time, and though the Indian had trouble in locating the shrubbery-hidden stone door again amidst the twilight of that deep gorge, the place was finally found. It was a very small aperture as doorways go, 
formed of monolithic sandstone, jams, and lintel, and bearing signs of nearly effaced and now undecipherable carvings. Its height was perhaps seven feet, and its width not more than four. There were drilled places in the jams which argued the bygone presence of a hinged door or gate, but all other traces of such a thing had long since vanished. At sight of this black gulf, Charging Buffalo displayed considerable fear and threw down his pack of supplies with signs of haste. He had provided Zamacona with a good stock of resinous torches and provisions and had guided him honestly and well, but refused to share in the venture that lay ahead. Zamacona gave him the trinkets he had kept for such an occasion and obtained his promise to return to the region in a month, afterwards showing the way southward to the Pecos Pueblo villages. A prominent rock on the plain above them was chosen as a meeting place, the one arriving first to pitch camp until the other should arrive. In the manuscript, Zamacona expressed a wistful wonder as to the Indian's length of waiting at the rendezvous, for he himself could never keep that tryst. At the last moment, Charging Buffalo tried to dissuade him from his plunge into the darkness, but soon saw it was futile and gestured a stoical farewell. Before lighting his first torch and entering the opening with his ponderous pack, the Spaniard watched the lean form of the Indian scrambling hastily and rather relievedly upward among the trees. It was the cutting of his last link with the world, though he did not know that he was never to see a human being, in the accepted sense of that term, again. Zamacona felt no immediate premonition of evil upon entering that ominous doorway, though from the first he was surrounded by a bizarre and unwholesome atmosphere. The passage, slightly taller and wider than the aperture, was for many yards a level tunnel of cyclopean masonry, with heavily worn flagstones underfoot and grotesquely carved granite and sandstone blocks in sides and ceiling. The carvings must have been loathsome and terrible indeed, to judge from Zamacona's description, according to which most of them revolved around the monstrous beings Yig and Tulu. They were unlike anything the adventurer had ever seen before, though he added that the native architecture of Mexico came closest to them of all things in the outer world. After some distance, the tunnel began to dip abruptly, and irregular natural rock appeared on all sides. The passage seemed only partly artificial, and decorations were limited to occasional cartouches with shocking bas-reliefs. Following an enormous descent, whose steepness at times produced an acute danger of slipping and tobogganing, the passage became exceedingly uncertain in its direction and variable in its contour. At times it narrowed almost to a slit, or grew so low that stooping and even crawling were necessary, while at other times it broadened out into sizable caves or chains of caves. Very little human construction, it was plain, had gone into this part of the tunnel, though occasionally a sinister cartouche or hieroglyphic on the wall, or a blocked-up lateral passageway, would remind Zamacona that this was, in truth, the aeon-forgotten high road to a primal and unbelievable world of living things. For three days, as best he could reckon, Panfilo de Zamacona scrambled down, up, along, and around, but always predominantly downward through this dark region of Paleogean night. Once in a while he heard some secret being of darkness patter or flap out of his way, and on just one occasion he half-glimpsed a great bleached thing that sent him trembling. The quality of the air was mostly very tolerable, 
though fetid zones were now and then met with, while one great cavern of stalactites and stalagmites offered a depressing dampness. This latter, when charging buffalo had come upon it, had quite seriously barred the way. Since the limestone deposits of ages had built fresh pillars in the path of the primordial abyss denizens. The Indian, however, had broken through these, so that Zamakona did not find his course impeded. It was an unconscious comfort to him to reflect that someone else from the outside world had been there before, and the Indian's careful descriptions had removed the element of surprise and unexpectedness. More, charging Buffalo's knowledge of the tunnel had led him to provide so good a torch supply for the journey in and out that there would be no danger of becoming stranded in darkness. Zamakona camped twice, building a fire whose smoke seemed well taken care of by the natural ventilation. At what he considered the end of the third day, though his cocksure guesswork chronology is not at any time to be given the easy faith that he gave it, Zamakona encountered the prodigious descent and subsequent prodigious climb, which Charging Buffalo had described as the tunnel's last phase. As at certain earlier points, marks of artificial improvement were here discernible, and several times the steep gradient was eased by a flight of rough-hewn steps. The torch showed more and more of the monstrous carvings on the walls, and finally the resinous flare seemed mixed with a fainter and more diffusive light as Zamakona climbed up and up after the last downward stairway. At length, the ascent ceased, and a level passage of artificial masonry with dark, basaltic blocks led straight ahead. There was no need for a torch now, for all the air was glowing with a bluish quasi-electric radiance that flickered like an aurora. It was the strange light of the inner world that the Indian had described, and in another moment Zamakona emerged from the tunnel upon a bleak, rocky hillside which climbed above him to a seething, impenetrable sky of bluish coruscations and descended dizzily below him to an apparently illimitable plain shrouded in bluish mist. He had come to the unknown world at last, and from his manuscript it is clear that he viewed the formless landscape as proudly and exultedly as ever his fellow countryman Balboa viewed the newfound Pacific from that unforgettable peak in Darien. Charging Buffalo had turned back at this point, driven by fear of something which he would only describe vaguely and evasively as a herd of bad cattle, neither horse nor buffalo, but like the things the mound spirits rode at night but Zamakona could not be deterred by any such trifle. Instead of fear, a strange sense of glory filled him, for he had imagination enough to know what it meant to stand alone in an inexplicable netherworld whose existence no other white man suspected. The soil of the great hill that surged upward behind him and spread steeply downward below him was dark gray, rock-strewn, without vegetation, and probably basaltic in origin with an unearthly cast which made him feel like an intruder on an alien planet. The vast, distant plain, thousands of feet below, had no features he could distinguish, especially since it appeared to be largely veiled in a curling bluish vapor, but more than hill or plain or cloud, the bluely luminous coruscating sky impressed the adventurer with a sense of supreme wonder and mystery. What created this sky within a world he could not tell, though he knew of the northern lights and had even seen them once or twice. He concluded that this subterraneous light was something vaguely akin to the aurora, 
a view which moderns may well endorse, though it seems likely that certain phenomena of radioactivity may also enter in. At Zamacona's back, the mouth of the tunnel he had traversed yawned darkly. Defined by a stone doorway, very like the one he had entered in the world above, save that it was of grayish-black basalt instead of red sandstone. There were hideous sculptures, still in good preservation and perhaps corresponding to those on the outer portal, which time had largely weathered away. The absence of weathering here argued a dry, temperate climate. Indeed, the Spaniard already began to note the delightfully spring-like stability of temperature which marks the air of the North's interior. On the stone jams were works proclaiming the bygone presence of hinges, but of any actual door or gate no trace remained. Seating himself for rest and thought, Zamacona lightened his pack by removing an amount of food and torches sufficient to take him back through the tunnel. These he proceeded to cache at the opening under a cairn hastily formed of the rock fragments which everywhere lay around. Then, readjusting his lightened pack, he commenced his descent toward the distant plain, preparing to invade a region which no living thing of outer earth had penetrated in a century or more, which no white man had ever penetrated, and from which, if legend were to be believed, no organic creature had ever returned sane. Zamacona strode briskly along down the steep, interminable slope, his progress checked at times by the bad walking that came from loose rock fragments, or by the excessive precipitousness of the grade. The distance of the misshrouded plain must have been enormous, for many hours walking brought him apparently no closer to it than he had been before. Behind him was always the great hill stretching upward into a bright aerial sea of bluish coruscations. Silence was universal so that his own footsteps and the fall of stones that he dislodged struck on his ears with startling distinctness. It was at what he regarded as about noon that he first saw the abnormal footprints which set him to thinking of charging Buffalo's terrible hints, precipitate flight, and strangely abiding terror. The rock-strewn nature of the soil gave few opportunities for tracks of any kind, but at one point a rather level interval had caused the loose detritus to accumulate in a ridge, leaving a considerable array of dark gray loam absolutely bare. Here, in a rambling confusion indicating a large herd aimlessly wandering, Zamakona found the abnormal prints. It is to be regretted that he could not describe them more accurately, but the manuscript displayed far more vague fear than accurate observation. Just what it was that so frightened the Spaniard can only be inferred from his later hints regarding the beasts. He referred to the prince as not hooves, nor hands, nor feet, nor precisely paws, nor so large as to cause alarm on that account. Just why or how long ago the things had been there was not easy to guess. There was no vegetation visible, hence grazing was out of the question. But of course, if the beasts were carnivorous, they might well have been hunting smaller animals whose tracks their own would tend to obliterate. Glancing backward from this plateau to the heights above, Zamacona thought he detected traces of a great winding road which had once led from the tunnel downward to the plain. One could get the impression of this former highway only from a broad panoramic view since a trickle of loose rock fragments had long ago obscured it, 
but the adventurer felt nonetheless certain that it had existed. It had not, probably, been an elaborately paved trunk route, for the small tunnel it reached seemed scarcely like a main avenue to the outer world. In choosing a straight path of descent, Zamakona had not followed its curving course, though he must have crossed it once or twice. With his attention now called to it, he looked ahead to see if he could trace it downward toward the plain, and this he finally thought he could do. He resolved to investigate its surface when next he crossed it, and perhaps to pursue its line for the rest of the way, if he could distinguish it. Having resumed his journey, Zamakona came some time later upon what he thought was a bend of the ancient road. There were signs of grading and of some primal attempt at rock surfacing, but not enough was left to make the route worth following. While rummaging about in the soil with his sword, the Spaniard turned up something that glittered in the eternal blue daylight and was thrilled at beholding a kind of coin or metal of a dark, unknown lustrous metal with hideous designs on each side. It was utterly and bafflingly alien to him, and from his description I have no doubt but that it was a duplicate of the talisman given me by Grey Eagle almost four centuries afterward. Pocketing it after a long and curious examination, he strode onward, finally pitching camp at an hour which he guessed to be the evening of the outer world. The next day, Zamakona rose early and resumed his descent through this blue-litten world of mist and desolation and preternatural silence. As he advanced, he at last became able to distinguish a few objects on the distant plain below, trees, bushes, rocks, and a small river that came into view from the right and curved forward at a point to the left of his contemplated course. This river seemed to be spanned by a bridge connected with the descending roadway, and with care the explorer could trace the route of the road beyond it in a straight line over the plain. Finally, he even thought he could detect towns scattered along the rectilinear ribbon, towns whose left-hand edges reached the river and sometimes crossed it. Where such crossings occurred, he saw, as he descended, there were always signs of bridges, either ruined or surviving. He was now in the midst of a sparse, grassy vegetation, and saw that below him the growth became thicker and thicker. The road was easier to define now, since its surface discouraged the grass which the looser soil supported. Rock fragments were less frequent, and the barren upward vista behind him looked bleak and forbidding in contrast to his present milieu. It was on this day that he saw the blurred mass moving over the distant plain. Since his first sight of the sinister footprints, he had met with no more of these, but something about that slowly and deliberately moving mass peculiarly sickened him. Nothing but a herd of grazing animals could move just like that, and after seeing the footprints, he did not wish to meet the things which had made them. Still, the moving mass was not near the road, and his curiosity and greed for fabled gold were great. Besides, who could really judge things from vague jumbled footprints or from the panic-twisted hints of an ignorant Indian. And straining his eyes to view the moving mass, Zamakona became aware of several other interesting things. One was that certain parts of the now unmistakable towns glittered oddly in the misty blue light. Another was that, beside the towns, several similarly glittering structures of a more isolated sort were scattered here and there along the road and over the plain. They seemed to be embowered in clumps of vegetation, 
and those off the road had small avenues leading to the highway. No smoke or other signs of life could be discerned about any of the towns or buildings. Finally, Zamaconis saw that the plain was not infinite in extent, though the half-concealing blue mists had hitherto made it seem so. It was bounded in the remote distance by a range of low hills toward a gap in which the river and roadway seemed to lead. All this, especially the glittering of certain pinnacles in the towns, had become very vivid when Zamakona pitched his second camp amidst the endless blue day. He likewise noticed the flocks of high-soaring birds whose nature he could not clearly make out. The next afternoon, to use the language of the outer world as the manuscript did at all times, Zamakona reached the silent plain and crossed the soundless, slow-running river on a curiously carved and fairly well-preserved bridge of black basalt. The water was clear and contained large fishes of a wholly strange aspect. The roadway was now paved and somewhat overgrown with weeds and creeping vines, and its course was occasionally outlined by small pillars bearing obscure symbols. On every side the grassy level extended, with here and there a clump of trees or shrubbery, and with unidentifiable bluish flowers growing irregularly over the whole area. Now and then, some spasmodic motion of the grass indicated the presence of serpents. In the course of several hours, the traveler reached a grove of old and alien-looking evergreen trees, which he knew from distant viewing, protected one of the glittering-roofed isolated structures. Amidst the encroaching vegetation, he saw the hideously sculptured pylons of a stone gateway leading off the road, and was presently forcing his way through briars above a moss-crusted, tessellated walk lined with huge trees and low monolithic pillars. At last, in this hushed green twilight, he saw the crumbling and ineffably ancient facade of the building, a temple he had no doubt. It was a mass of nauseous bas-reliefs, depicting scenes and beings, objects and ceremonies which could certainly have no place on this or any sane planet. In hinting of these things, Zamakona displays for the first time that shocked and pious hesitancy which impairs the informative value of the rest of his manuscript. We cannot help regretting that the Catholic ardor of Renaissance Spain had so thoroughly permeated his thought and feeling. The door of the place stood wide open, and absolute darkness filled the windowless interior. Conquering the repulsion which the mural sculptures had excited, Zamakona took out flint and steel, lighted a resinous torch, pushed aside curtaining vines, and sallied boldly across the ominous threshold. For a moment, he was quite stupefied by what he saw. It was not the all-covering dust and cobwebs of immemorial aeons, the fluttering winged things, the shriekingly loathsome sculptures on the walls, the bizarre form of the many basins and braziers, the sinister pyramidal altar with the hollow top, or the monstrous octopus-headed abnormality in some strange dark metal leering and squatting broodingly on its hieroglyphed pedestal, which robbed him of even the power to give a startled cry. It was nothing so unearthly as this, but merely the fact that, with the exception of the dust, the cobwebs, the winged things, and the gigantic emerald-eyed idol, every particle of substance in sight was composed of pure, 
and evidently solid gold. Even the manuscript, written in retrospect after Zamakona knew that gold is the most common structural metal of a nether world containing limitless loads and veins of it, reflects the frenzied excitement which the traveler felt upon suddenly finding the real source of all the Indian legends of golden cities. For a time, the power of detailed observation left him, but in the end his faculties were recalled by a peculiar tugging sensation in the pocket of his doublet. Tracing the feeling, he realized that the disk of strange metal he had found in the abandoned road was being attracted strongly by the vast octopus-headed, emerald-eyed idol on the pedestal, which he now saw to be composed of the same unknown exotic metal. He was later to learn that this strange magnetic substance, as alien to the inner world as to the outer world of men, is the one precious metal of the blue-lighted abyss. None knows what it is or where it occurs in nature, and the amount of it on this planet came down from the stars with the people when great Tulu, the octopus-headed god, brought them for the first time to this earth. Certainly its only known source was a stock of pre-existing artifacts, including multitudes of cyclopean idols. It could never be placed or analyzed, and even its magnetism was exerted only on its own kind. It was the supreme ceremonial metal of the hidden people, its use being regulated by custom in such a way that its magnetic properties might cause no inconvenience. A very weakly magnetic alloy of it with such base metals as iron, gold, silver, copper, or zinc had formed the sole monetary standard of the hidden people at one period of their history. Zamakona's reflections on their strange idol and its magnetism were disturbed by a tremendous wave of fear, as, for the first time in this silent world, he heard a rumble of very definite and obviously approaching sound. There was no mistaking its nature. It was a thunderously charging herd of large animals, and remembering the Indian's panic, the footprints and the moving mass distantly seen, the Spaniard shuddered in terrified anticipation. He did not analyze his position nor the significance of this onrush of great lumbering beings, but merely responded to an elemental urge toward self-protection. Charging herds do not stop to find victims in obscure places, and on the outer earth Zamakona would have felt little or no alarm in such a massive grove-girt edifice. Some instinct, however, now bred a deep and peculiar terror in his soul, and he looked about frantically for any means of safety. There being no available refuge in the great gold-patinaed interior, he felt that he must close the long-disused door, which still hung on its ancient hinges, doubled back against the inner wall. Soil, vines, and moss had entered the opening from outside, so that he had to dig a path for the great gold portal with his sword, but he managed to perform this work very swiftly under the frightful stimulus of the approaching noise. The hoofbeats had grown still louder and more menacing by the time he began tugging at the heavy door itself, and for a while his fears reached a frantic height, as hope of starting the age-clogged metal grew faint. Then with a creak, the thing responded to his youthful strength, and a frenzied siege of pulling and pushing ensued. Amidst the roar of unseen stampeding feet, success came at last, and the ponderous golden door clanged shut, leaving Zamakona in darkness, 
but for the single lighted torch he had wedged between the pillars of a basin tripod. There was a latch, and the frightened man blessed his patron saint that it was still effective. Sound alone told the fugitive the sequel. When the roar grew very near, it resolved itself into separate footfalls, as if the evergreen grove had made it necessary for the herd to slacken speed and disperse. But feet continued to approach, and it became evident that the beasts were advancing among the trees and circling the hideously carven temple walls. In the curious deliberation of their tread, Zamakona found something very alarming and repulsive, nor did he like the scuffling sounds which were audible even through the thick stone walls and heavy golden door. Once the door rattled ominously on its archaic hinges as if under a heavy impact, but fortunately it still held. Then, after a seemingly endless interval, he heard retreating steps and realized that his unknown visitors were leaving. Since the herds did not seem to be very numerous, it would have perhaps been safe to venture out within a half hour or less, but Zamakona took no chances. Opening his pack, he prepared his camp on the golden tiles of the temple's floor, with the great door still securely latched against all comers. Drifting eventually into a sounder sleep than he could have known in the blue-lit spaces outside. He did not even mind the hellish, octopus-headed bulk of Great Tulu, fashioned of unknown metal and leering with fishy sea-green eyes which squatted in the blackness above him on its monstrously hieroglyphed pedestal. Surrounded by darkness, for the first time since leaving the tunnel, Zamakona slept profoundly and long. He must have more than made up the sleep he had lost at his two previous camps when the ceaseless glare of the sky had kept him awake despite his fatigue, for much distance was covered by other living feet while he lay in his healthily dreamless rest. It is well that he rested deeply, for there were many strange things to be encountered in his next period of consciousness. And that was Chapter 3. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying it. If you enjoy my readings and want to commission some voice work of your own, I'm always happy to take them. I happen to have some free time in the voice acting area of life right now, so I'd love to help. Send me an email at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com and we'll discuss rates. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, you can join me on Patreon. Every dollar goes toward the show and it has, in the year I've had it, paid for the Pride Month readers, the hosting fees, some advertising, and to get my computer repaired. None of the money goes into my pocket or to buy stuff for me. Anyway, thank you so much to Pontus Fredrickson, Andrew Buchanan, and Samantha Hickey for their support. The show is made better by it, and it makes me want to do better with the show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Please go and get vaccinated if you haven't. Wear a mask, even if you have. Punch a racist in the face, and always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. <laughs>